0: Welcome to the library, dear listener. Please, take a seat. I have a story for you. Before we start, though, I have some news. Until October 10th, we're offering our exclusive Halloween-themed stickers to patrons at the $5 level. I adore these designs, and I hope you will, too. As a token of our appreciation, you'll receive these, along with our sincere gratitude. Your support means the world to us especially as a small production like ours. With that all said, settle in. This is The Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Eight, The Baker Street Irregulars.
1: What now? Toby has lost his character for infallibility.
2: He acted according to his lights. (gasps) If you consider how much creosote is carted about London in one day, it is no great wonder that our trail should have been crossed. It is much used now, especially for the seasoning of wood. Poor Toby is not to blame. We must get on the main scent again, I suppose. Yes, and fortunately, we have no distance to go. Evidently, what puzzled the dog at the corner of Knight's place was that there were two different trails running in opposite directions. We took the wrong one. It only remains to follow the other. We will take him back to where the trail diverges. We must take care that he doesn't bring us to the place where the Creazote barrel came from. I had thought of that. But you notice that he keeps on the pavement, whereas the barrel passed down the roadway. No. We are on the true scent now.
0: It tended down towards the riverside, running through Belmont Place and Princes Street. At the end of Broad Street, it ran right down to the water's edge, where there was a small wooden wharf.
2: Ah, we're out of luck. They have to have taken a boat here.
0: Several small punts and skiffs were lying about in the water and on the edge of the wharf. We took Toby round each in turn, but though he sniffed earnestly, he made no sign. Close to the landing stage was a small brick house, with a wooden placard slung out through the second window.
1: Mordecai Smith, boats to hire by the hour or day.
0: A second inscription above the door informed us that a steam launch was kept. A statement which was confirmed by a great pile of coke upon the jetty.
2: Mm, this looks bad. These fellows are sharper than I expected. They seem to have covered their tracks. There has, I fear, been preconcerted management here.
3: You come back and be washed, Jack. Come back, you young imp. When your father comes home and finds you like that, he'll let us hear of it.
2: Dear little chap, what a rosy-cheeked young rascal. Now, Jack, is there anything you would like?
0: Hmm, I'd like a shillin'.
2: And is there nothing you would like better?
0: I'd like two shillings better.
2: Here you are, then. Catch. A fine child, Mrs. Smith.
3: Lord bless you, sir. He is that and forward. It gets almost too much for me to manage, especially when my man is away days at a time.
2: Away, is he? Ah, I'm sorry for that, for I wanted to speak to Mr. Smith.
3: He's been away since yesterday morning, sir. And truth to tell, I am beginning to feel frightened about him. But if it was about the boat, sir, maybe I could serve as well?
2: Ah. You see, I wanted to hire his steam launch.
3: Why bless you sir, it's in the steam launch that he has gone. That's what puzzles me. For I know there ain't more coals in her than would take her to about Woolwich and back. If he'd been away in the barge, I'd have thought nothing. For many a time the job has taken him as far as gravesend. And then if there was much doing there, he might have stayed over. What good is a steam launch without coals?
2: He might have bought some at the wharf down the river.
3: He might sir, but it weren't his way. Many a time I've heard him call out the prices they charge for a few odd bags. Besides, I don't like that wooden-legged man, with his ugly face and outlandish talk. What did he want always knocking about here for?
2: A wooden-legged man?
3: Yes sir, a brown monkey-faced chap that's called more than once for my old man. It was him that roast him up yesterday night. And what's more, my man knew he was coming, for he had steam up in the launch. I tell you straight, sir. I don't feel easy in my mind about it.
2: But, my dear Mrs. Smith, you are frightening yourself about nothing. How could you possibly tell that it was the wooden-legged man who came in the night? I don't quite understand how you could be so sure.
3: His voice, sir. I knew his voice, which is kind of thick and foggy. He tapped at the window About three would be. Show a leg, matey, says he. Time to turn our guard. Well man woke up Jim, that's my eldest, and away they went without so much as a word to me. I could hear the wooden leg clacking on the stones.
2: And was this wooden-legged man alone?
3: Couldn't say, I'm sure, sir. I didn't hear no one else.
2: I'm sorry, Mrs. Smith, for I wanted a steam launch and I have heard good reports of the... Let me see, what is her name?
3: The Aurora, sir.
2: Ah! She's not that old green launch with a yellow line, very broad in the beam.
3: No, indeed. She's as trim a little thing as any on the river. She's been fresh-painted black with two red streaks.
2: Thanks. I hope that you will hear soon from Mr. Smith. I'm going down the river, and if I should see anything of the Aurora, I shall let him know that you are uneasy. A black funnel, you say?
3: No, sir. Black with a white band.
2: Ah, of course. It was the sides which were black. Good morning, Miss Smith. There's a boatman here with a wary person. We shall take it across the river. The main thing with people of that sort is never to let them know that the information they have can be of the slightest importance to you. If you do, they will instantly shut up like an oyster If you listen to them under protest, as it were, you're very likely to get what you want. Our course
1: now seems pretty clear. What
2: would you do, then? I would engage a launch and go down the river on the track of the Aurora. My dear fellow, it would be a colossal task. She may have touched at any wharf on either side of the stream between here and Greenwich. Below the bridge, there is a perfect labyrinth of landing places for miles. It would take you days and days to exhaust them, if you set about it alone. Employ the police, then. No, wrong again. I shall probably call Athelny Jones in at the last moment. He's not a bad fellow, and I should not like to do anything which would injure him professionally. But I have a bit of a fancy for working it out myself, now that we've gone so far.
1: Could we advertise then? Asking for information from Warfingers?
2: Worse and worse. Have you no good ideas? Our men would know that the chase was hot at their heels, and they would be off out of the country. As it is, they're likely enough to leave. But as long as they think they're perfectly safe, they will be in no hurry. Jones's energy will be of use to us there, for his view of the case is sure to push itself into the daily press, and the runaways will think that everyone is off on the wrong scent. What are we to do then? Take this handsome, drive home, have some breakfast, and get an hour's worth of sleep. Maybe then you might provide to me an insight that will be useful. It is quite on the cards that we may be afoot again tonight. Stop at a telegraph office, cabby. We will keep Toby, for he may be of use to us yet.
0: We pulled up at the Great Peter Street Post Office, and Holmes dispatched his wire. Whom
2: do you think that is to? I'm sure I don't know. You remember the Baker Street division of the Detective Police Force whom I employed in the Jefferson Hope case? Well. (laughs) This is just the case where they might be invaluable. If they fail, I have other resources, but I shall try them first. That wire was to my dirty little lieutenant, Wiggins, and I expect that he and his gang will be with us before we have finished our breakfast.
0: It was between eight and nine o'clock now, and I was conscious of a strong reaction after the successive excitements of the night. I was limp and weary, befrogged in mind and fatigued in body. I had not the professional enthusiasm which carried my companion, nor could I look at the matter as a mere abstract intellectual problem. As far as the death of Bartholomew Schulte went, I had heard little good of him and could feel no intense antipathy to his murderers. The treasure, however, was a different matter. That, or part of it, belonged rightfully to Miss Morstan. While there was a chance of recovering it, I was ready to devote my life to the one object. True, if I found it, it would probably put her forever beyond my reach. Yet, it would be a petty and selfish love which would be influenced by such a thought as that. If Holmes could work to find the criminals, I had a tenfold stronger reason to urge me on to find the treasure. A bath at Baker Street and a complete change freshened me up wonderfully. When I came down to our room, I found the breakfast laid and Holmes pouring out the coffee.
2: There it is. The energetic Jones and the ubiquitous reporter have fixed it up between them. But you have had enough of the case. Better have your ham and eggs first.
1: Mysterious Business at Upper Norwood About twelve o'clock last night, said the Standard, Mr. Bartholomew Sholto of Pondicherry Lodge, Upper Norwood, was found dead in his room under circumstances which point to foul play. As far as we can learn, no actual traces of violence were found upon Mr. Sholto's person, but a valuable collection of Indian gems, which the deceased gentleman had inherited from his father, has been carried off. The discovery was first made by Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, who had called at the house with Mr. Thaddeus Sholto, brother of the deceased. By a singular piece of good fortune, Mr. Athelney Jones, the well-known member of the detective police force, happened to be at the Norwood police station and was on the ground within half an hour of the first alarm. His trained and experienced faculties were at once directed towards the detection of the criminals, with the gratifying result that the brother, Thaddeus Sholto, has already been arrested together with the housekeeper Mrs. Burnstone, an Indian butler named Lal Rao, and a porter or gatekeeper named McMurdo. It is quite certain that the thief or thieves were well acquainted with the house, For Mr. Jones's well-known technical knowledge and his powers of minute observation have enabled him to prove conclusively that the miscreants could not have entered by the door or by the window, but must have made their way across the roof of the building and so through a trap door into a room which communicated with that in which the body was found. This fact, which has been very clearly made out, proves conclusively that it was no mere haphazard burglary. The prompt and energetic action of the officers of the law shows the great advantage of the presence on such occasions of a single vigorous and masterful mind. We cannot but think that it supplies an argument to those who would wish to see our detectives more decentralized and so brought into closer and more effective touch with the cases which it is their duty to investigate.
2: Isn't it gorgeous? What do you think of it?
1: I think that we have had a close shave ourselves of being arrested for
2: the crime. So do I. I wouldn't answer for our safety now. If he should happen to have another of his attacks of energy... By heaven, Holmes. I believe they are really after us. No, it's not quite so bad as that. It is the unofficial force, the Baker Street Irregulars.
1: Got your message, sir, and brought them on sharp. Free Bob and a tenner for
2: tickets. Here you are. In future, they can report to you, Wiggins, and you to me. I cannot have the house invaded in this way. However, it is just as well that you should all hear the instructions. I want to find the whereabouts of a steam launch called the Aurora. Owner, Mordecai Smith, black with two red streaks, funnel black with a white band. She's down the river somewhere. I want one boy to be at Mordecai Smith landing stage opposite Millbank to say if the boat comes back. You must divide it out amongst yourself and do both banks thoroughly. Let me know the moment you have news. Have I made myself clear to you? Yes, Governor old scale of pay, and a guinea to the boy who finds the boat. Here's a day in advance. Now, off you go! If the launch is above water, they will find her. They can go everywhere, see everything, overhear everyone. I expect to hear before evening that they have spotted her. In the meanwhile, we can do nothing but await results. We cannot pick up the broken trail until we find either the Aurora or Mr. Mordecai Smith."
1: Toby could eat these scraps,
2: I dare say. Are you going to bed, Holmes? No, I am not tired. I have a curious constitution. I never remember feeling tired by work, though idleness exhausts me completely. I am going to smoke and to think over this queer business to which my fair client has introduced us. If ever a man had an easy task, this of ours ought to be. Wooden-legged men are not so common, but the other man must, I should think, be absolutely unique. That other man again? I have no wish to make a mystery of him. To you, anyway. But you must have formed your own opinion, worthless as it may be. Now, do consider the data. Diminutive footmarks, toes never fettered by boots, naked feet, stone-headed wooden mace, great agility, small poison darts. What do you make of all this?
1: An Aboriginal. Perhaps one of those Indians who were with the associates
2: of Jonathan Small. Hardly that. Watson, when I first saw the signs of strange weapons, I was inclined to think so, but the remarkable character of the footmarks caused me to reconsider my views. Some of the inhabitants of the Indian peninsula are small men, but none could have left such marks as that. The Hindu have long and thin feet. The sandal-wearing Mohammedan has the great toe well separated from the others because the thong is commonly passed between. These little darts, too, could only be shot in one way, from a blowpipe. Now then, where are we to find our aboriginal? South America? This is the first volume of a gazetteer which is now being published. It may be looked upon as the very latest authority. What have we here? Andaman Islands, situated 340 miles to the north of Sumatra in the Bay of Bengal. Hmm <laughs> What's all this? Moist climates? Coral reefs? Sharks? Port Blair? Convict barracks? Rutland Island? Cottonwoods? Ah, here we are. The aborigines of the Andaman Islands may perhaps claim the distinction of being the smallest race upon this earth, though some anthropologists prefer the Bushmen of Africa the Digger Indians of America, and the Terra del Fuegians. The average height is rather below four feet, although many full-grown adults may be found who are very much smaller than this. They are a fierce, morose, and intractable people, though capable of forming most devoted friendships when their confidence has once been gained. Mark that, Watson. Now then, listen to this. They have large, misshapen heads and small, fierce eyes. Their feet and hands, however, are remarkably small. So intractable and fierce are they that in all the efforts of the British official have failed to win them over in any degree. They have always been a terror to shipwrecked crews, braining the survivors with their stone-headed clubs or shooting them with their poisoned arrows. These massacres are invariably concluded by a cannibal feast. Nice, amiable people, Watson. If this fellow had been left to his own unaided devices, this affair might have taken an even more ghastly turn. I fancy that, even as it is, Jonathan Small would give a good deal not to have employed him. But how came he to have so singular a companion? Ah, That is more than I can tell. Since, however, we had already determined that Small had come from the Andamans, it is not so very wonderful that this islander should be with him. No doubt we shall know all about it in time. Look here, Watson. You look regularly done. Lie down there on the sofa and see if I can put you to sleep.
0: He took up his violin from the corner, and as I stretched myself out, he began to play some low dreamy, melodious air. His own, no doubt, for he had a remarkable gift of improvisation. I have a vague remembrance of his gaunt limbs, his earnest face, and the rise and fall of his bow. Then I seemed to be floated peacefully away upon a soft sea of sound, until I found myself in dreamland, with the sweet face of Mary Morstan looking down upon me. And that is all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. If you would like, the Tea Room is open for you on Patreon. You'll get each episode early and ad-free. And until October 10th, stickers. Today's episode featured the talents of Joshua as Sherlock, Paul as Watson, Maddie as Mrs. Smith and Wiggins, Mihai as the Irregulars' leader, and me, Willow, as your narrator. Links will be in the show notes. Until next week, take care, and we'll see you soon. It was late in the afternoon when the Professor and I took our way towards the East, whence I knew Jonathan was coming.
1: Jonathan Harker has asked me to note this, as he says he is hardly equal to the task, and he wants an exact record kept. Dear
0: Madam Mina, I have read your husband's so wonderful diary. Strange and terrible as it is, it is true. I will pledge my life on it.
1: God preserve my sanity, for to this I am reduced. Safety and the assurance of safety are things of the past.
0: I am in hopes that I shall see more of you at Castle Dracula. Listen to Regarding Dracula wherever you listen to podcasts or find us online at bloody.fm.